Once you have that Bible, go ahead and open up to Romans. We're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. We got through the bulk of chapter 9 last week, so we'll finish up 9 and get into 10. Where we're at in Romans, if you guys were here last week or you weren't, um, Paul's shifting his focus in chapters 9 through 11 to addressing the the nation of Israel or his brethren, the Jewish people, and, and God's plan for them. It's important to understand the context of these chapters, why he's discussing what he's discussing. And we saw in chapter 9 last week, um, Paul explained to the person who might wonder, just looking at the nation of Israel and, and kind of the predicament they appear to be in right now, somebody might wonder if, if God had abandoned them. I mean, they were God's chosen people. Where's God in their life now? And what he's like very, like, like just in an expert way breaking down that, that argument, he's showing that that's not the case at all. In Romans 9, he, he basically showed that God's past dealings with the Jewish nation not only show his sovereignty or that he's actually in control of everything going on, but that he, in fact, has been nothing but been faithful to keep his word, to keep his promises to them. And so this week, we're going to finish up that chapter 9 and continue to look at the reasons why God has, in fact, been faithful, why he hasn't uh, negated on his word to them at all. And then we're going to go through chapter 10, which talks about God's present dealings with Israel, showing his equity to them. We talked about in Romans 9, his past dealings with them, showing his sovereignty, but we're going to talk about his present dealings with Israel, showing his equity. So let me pray really quick, and then we'll start going through the the chapters we're going to be in. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, just want to settle our hearts and minds again. It's easy to come in here, Lord, thinking about a lot of other stuff, even even with me, and we just want to give you our undivided attention, Lord. Your words produce life in us, or they, they tell us how, how we're really going to find life, how we're really going to live, and there's so many other things in this world that we think we can find life in, and they only disappoint us, but you, you never have, and you never will, so we want to listen to the words of life that you give us and really take them in and hear what your Holy Spirit has to say to us as far as how they apply to what's going on in our life right now. It's been said that where you're at in the word is where you're at in life, and I've found that to be true over and over again, that you speak directly to me in what I'm going through in my life whenever I'm opening up your word and listening. So I just pray it would be like that for all my brothers and sisters, because only you know exactly what they need to hear. You know exactly what direction they need. You know what comfort they need. You know what correction we need. Whatever it might be, your spirit is here to help us understand your word. And as Jesus said, bring it to remembrance or or know how to use it in our lives, apply it to our lives. So may you speak and may us, may we listen, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as, as we finish up Romans 9, I just want to remind us of uh, there were three reasons last week that, that, we, that I pointed out kind of as an outline for Romans 9 where these are reasons that Paul's addressing in why God has been faithful and he hasn't abandoned Israel. The first reason is that if you just look at them and you look at like where they're at right now in their relationship with God, The first reason that he's been faithful to them and not abandoned them is that not all of Israel has chosen to follow God. So you can't blame God for people that choose not to follow him because the blessings that come with following God and obeying him don't don't apply to those that choose not to follow him, that choose to reject him. So that was the first reason. The second reason is not all people are, are chosen by God. God in his foreknowledge knows who's gonna actually follow him and not. So... The Bible talks about um, God's sovereignty and God's uh, election and God's choosing of people. And so that's another reason um, why he has not been, or he has not not been faithful in keeping his word to them. And then the 
Third and last reason that we looked at last week was that there's always been a remnant of Israel throughout all of history. So God has, in fact, been faithful in that there's always been, a, by his sovereignty, a, a, a group of Jewish, the Jewish nation that has been faithful to follow him and that he's protected and he's preserved and that he's blessed, he's kept his word to. So as we finish up chapter nine here, the fourth and last reason why God has not abandoned Israel, but rather it's, it's the Jewish nation, the majority of them that have rejected him up to this point, is that they have refused to receive Jesus as the Messiah. This is the fourth reason why he's been faithful and, and actually any, any consequences they face are on themselves, and that is that they have refused to receive Jesus as a Messiah. As Paul, Paul goes on to say, Romans chapter nine, verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that it that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Paul quoting Isaiah chapter eight, verse 14, and Isaiah 28, verse 16 here. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, in a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul's addressing how some people might look at the Gentiles and wonder, why have they succeeded in being right with God when they aren't even trying to follow the law that God gave as a standard for righteousness? Whereas the Jewish nation who were trying so hard to be right with God by keeping his law weren't succeeding. So Paul answers here. He tells us here that the righteousness with God that the Gentiles have attained, this is you and me, or that we've received, can only come through faith in Jesus, as verse 30 says. Whereas the righteousness sought by Israel through following the law as verse 31 says, was never attainable. You see, we as followers of Jesus, as Gentiles, have understood that we are sinners and that no matter how hard we try, we can't save ourselves from that sin. We cannot be perfect in God's eyes. We cannot be righteous so the only way to be forgiven of that sin is through believing in Jesus and his death on the cross, which allowed the penalty of our sins to be paid for so we could be forgiven of them and therefore righteous in God's eyes. That is the good news. That is the gospel, right? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. Now, on the flip side, the vast majority of the Jewish nation has attempted to make themselves righteous with God by attempting to follow the law, which is impossible. It only revealing our sin to us so that we understand we need to be saved from it by a savior who is Jesus Christ. But due to their refusal to place their faith in Jesus, instead of being the cornerstone of their salvation, he has become a stumbling stone to them, as verse 32 and 33 says. So it's not God that has been unfaithful to keep his word to the Jewish nation. But in fact, them rebuking or, or refusing to believe in the Messiah that his word clearly talked about, them choosing to reject Jesus is what in fact is keeping them from being saved. All right? 
So that's the last reason. And now we move on to chapter 10, a chapter that shows us how God's present dealings with Israel show his equity or that he has been more than fair in offering his gift of salvation to everybody that is willing to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, including the Jewish nation. Jews and Gentiles alike, as we're going to see. Now, in an outliner, if you're an outliner, Stephen Smiley, this is for you. An outline for this chapter that'll help you understand it. Verses one through four talks about how Christ has been revealed as savior to all of Israel. Christ has been revealed as savior to all of Israel. Verses five through 15 talk about how Christ is received as savior by some of Israel. Christ is received as savior by some of Israel. Verses 16 through 21 talk about how Christ has been rejected as Savior by most of Israel. Christ has been rejected as Savior by most of Israel. So let's first look at what Paul has to say about Christ being revealed as Savior to all of Israel in verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is them being the Jewish nation, his Jewish brethren, For them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul makes it clear that his desire and his prayer is to see his Jewish brethren saved, acknowledging that, in verse two, they are, in fact, zealous for God, or they're sincere in wanting to follow God. They're sincere in wanting to do what he says is right. But he points out in verse two that they have a zealousness for God without knowledge, or that their desire to follow God is misdirected as they've refused to accept God's way of making people right with himself. In their arrogant ignorance, they have actually attempted to achieve righteousness with God by their own actions, as verse 3 says, in trying to be good people, good enough for God by following the law. Paul already telling us back in Romans 3.20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. No matter how hard you try, Even when they had all of those sacrifices to temporarily cover over the sins, they had to keep doing them because they keep falling short. The point of the law was to show us this is what it takes to be perfectly righteous with God. And there's no way you can do it. You need to be saved. Now, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 17, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. So, listen, if the purpose of the law is to show us how sinful we are, as we saw in Romans 3.20, Jesus fulfills it or accomplishes its purpose by being the one that can save you from your sin. If the law is to show you how sinful you are, Jesus fulfills it by being the one that can save you from that sin and make us righteous before God, which ends the law for being the basis for having a relationship with God for the Christian. That's good news. Because until Jesus came and died, the basis of being right with God was the law, which nobody could do. But when he came and paid the penalty that our sins deserved on the cross instead of us and allowed us to believe in him and receive that free gift, all of a sudden, his faith in him became the basis for being right with God. And as a result, righteousness with God can now be offered to everyone who is willing to believe or place their faith in Jesus, as verse 4 says, Jews and Gentiles alike. And our relationship with God can be restored. So Jesus has been revealed to all of the Jewish nation, the idea is, as a way to save them from their sin. All they have to do is believe, and they can be made righteous with God. Amen? All right. Moving on, 
So now let's look at what Paul has to say about Christ being received as Savior to some of Israel. Second, second thing in verses 5 through 15, Christ being received as Savior to some of Israel. He goes on to say in verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Paul's saying here that God's law given to us through Moses is clear. If you want to try to live by the law or be righteous before God through it, go ahead. But what it says is, is that you've got to follow it completely. Not messing up in any way, perfectly, which, if we're being honest, none of us is able to do. Verse 6 goes on to say, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Paul going on to say here, okay, the righteousness we receive through faith isn't something you have to work or go to great lengths for. He uses the analogy like ascending into heaven or descending into abyss. He's saying, you don't have to go to heaven to find Jesus. You don't have to go to hell to bring up Jesus. It's not at all about what you have to do to get to God because you can never do it. It's all about what God did to get to you. Paul going on to tell us there's only one way, one way to be right with God. And he says in verse eight, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. Paul quoting Deuteronomy 30, uh, verse 14 there. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul telling us here that the message of the gospel or the good news about Jesus that he's proclaiming, as he says in in verse eight, this is what he's been telling the Jewish people was in fact all one had to believe in in order to be made right with God. We can't become right with God by any works we do, but rather by confessing and believing in Jesus and the work he already did on the cross through his death and resurrection. Confession means to agree with something, okay? So to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, as verse 9 says, means that you agree with what God's word says about Jesus. It means you agree that Jesus is God. It means that you agree that he is the Messiah sent by God to save you and me. It means that you agree that his work on the cross is the only way that the just penalty for your sin and my sin can be paid for so we can be forgiven of them and set free from the power sin had over us and the penalty that of death that resulted from it. To confess that Jesus is Lord of your life means that you are agreeing to let him be the supreme authority that you answer to above all else. The Greek word used in verse 9 for Lord being kurios, which a Gentile would use to describe their king or emperor, and what a Jew would use to describe God. So it's a word that no Jew or Gentile would ever use in confessing as their, is Jesus as their Lord when this was written, unless they really meant that they were going to allow him to rule and reign over their lives. Paul also saying that you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead in verse 9. 
So what he's saying there is the intellectual belief, head knowledge, that's not enough. As the Lord wants your heart in your mind. Jesus tells us in Mark 12, 30, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart. First and foremost, he says, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Why does he want you to love him in his heart, in your heart? Well, I would say it's because your minds are fickle, all right? Our minds are easily changed. And you shouldn't have to look too hard to realize that because what was healthy last week is not healthy this week. Or what was truth a month ago is no longer truth, right? Our minds are set on something until we're, pro we're, we're provided with a different set of facts that seem agreeable to us. Then all of a sudden, we change our minds completely, okay? But that's not the case with our hearts. When we love something in our hearts, that can't un uh, be undone easily, for those of us that have lost loved ones in our lives, like our spouses or kids or people that were close to us, did you just change your mind in thinking about them as your spouse or your child because they're not here anymore? No, right? Not at all, because you love them in your heart. And just because your heart might be breaking with only the Lord being able to hold it together, the love of them doesn't ever go away. It doesn't change. And that's where the Lord wants your belief for him to reside so that it's, it's unshakable. It never changes. It's always there. It being simple belief in confession in Jesus that leads to, as it says in verse 10, justification and salvation. Justification we talked about earlier in Romans, but to put it in easy terms to understand, to be made just as if you had no sin. Salvation means that you are being saved from sin and the power it has over you because you're born with a nature to not be able to do anything other than sin, be the, do the opposite of what's right and good. So you're saved from that. And then you're saved from the penalty of that sin, which the wages of sin is death, as we learned earlier in Romans. You're saved from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And no work at all is involved on our part. Rather, this righteousness with God being offered is a gift to everyone and anyone. There being no distinction between Gentile or Jew, as verse 12 says, as Jesus is Lord of all, and he wants to be the Lord for all. Romans 9, showing us salvation from God's perspective and his calling of us. Romans 10, showing us salvation from our perspective, telling us that we also have the responsibility to call upon the name of the Lord, as verse 13 says, and then you'll be saved. Amen? And this here is an encouraging verse or passage because not only does it tell us how to be saved, but here's the thing. It gives you great confidence in that you never have to worry when you share the gospel with somebody, if it can actually change their lives. It can change. It will change their lives if they are willing to receive it, as Paul describes in this passage, which is not dependent on you at all. It's completely dependent on them. All you are is the messenger. Amen? And Paul goes on to tell us this in verse 14. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are, them, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Verse 13 told us that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But in order for that to take place, Paul goes on in verses 14 through 15 to give us an order of events that need to happen first. First and foremost, people need to know who to believe in before they can call out to him. Secondly, people have to be told specifically about Jesus before they can know it's him that they need to believe in. Thirdly, 
people can't be told about Jesus unless somebody's talking about him. And fourthly, we won't have anyone to tell unless we get up off our butts and go out into the world to tell them. And as followers of Jesus, I want you guys to listen to this, all right? Because sometimes we mistake this. As followers of Jesus, every single one of us are called to be God's preachers. Not just me, all of us. Which means first, our individual responsibility is to tell people the good news about Jesus as we've been sent by Jesus himself to do that. He tells us in Mark 16, 15 through 16, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. Secondly, it's also our responsibility as a whole, as a church, to send or disperse people out into the world to share the good news about Jesus with those that need to hear it. Jesus also telling us this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands or teach them my word that I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And this is accomplished by first equipping you guys, and that's what I'm doing here. That's my job as a pastor, to equip you guys for the work of the ministry that God's called you to as soon as you go out from here. Okay, so that's what I'm doing now. And as you go out into the local community, you get to be a witness for Jesus and all the relationships that he's divinely and sovereignly put in your life. And, and then the second thing that we're supposed to do is assisting those who have been called to go out into the world beyond this community as the Lord leads, which we do through supporting missionaries and ministries as a church and in, individually in our lives. Now, if we aren't faithful to do these things, if we're not faithful to obey these commands, that's what they are, the people that need to believe in Jesus won't be able to hear about him, as Paul tells us in verse 14. And this is a beautiful ministry, as it says there in verse 15. It's a beautiful experience to tell others the good news, as Paul says in verse 15. First, because it's the best news you could ever give anyone. How many of you guys like to share good news with people? How many of you guys have bought your present already for your Valentine? All right, husbands, I'm trying to help you out right now, all right? Because if you didn't, you better do it, all right? Now, I was actually, I can preach this because I was on top of it this year because I knew there was something my wife really wanted. She's a kid's mystery right now, so I could talk a little more freely. But... I knew there was something she wanted, and so I ordered it in advance, and I have it, and it has been so hard for me not to tell her, because I'm, I know she's going to love it, and so I have this great news, and I'm just holding it inside of me, and that's the hardest thing to do. I want to tell her now. I don't want to wait, and so that's what the gospel is supposed to do, because the more we learn about our salvation, the more we learn about God, we, the more we learn about what it entails for us, the more excited we should be to share that with other people because it's not just for us. It's for everyone and anyone. And it should be bursting in us where we just can't help it. I got good news. I gotta share it with you, right? Now, the second reason it's a beautiful thing to tell people is because you're meeting the single greatest need anyone born in this world could ever have in telling them how to be saved. And you should only have to look at your own life because all the things that we look at from the earth, we look for in this world from the earliest age, purpose, identity, contentment, joy, peace, all these things where we're constantly let down by the things in the world, they're all found in Jesus. They're all found in Jesus. We're giving people everything they're looking for in, in our testimony tells us that, Right? Because we found it in him. We're finding it in him. The longer we follow him, the more we realize he's all we need. 
And we're giving that to people, what they're looking for, whether they know it or not. Yes, God most certainly being able to share the gospel with anyone and everyone, any way he wants, but he chooses to give us this amazing privilege of this beautiful work that can be done anywhere, anytime. It, that's the heart of the gospel is when you become a Christian, you're doing this in your home with your family. You can do it at work. You're doing it in school for you young people. Anytime, anywhere. This is our, our, our commission, this, this command from God to be, be able to share this good news with the people around us. And if we are Christians, and if we're in a place of feeling discouraged in our walk, kind of like, my walk doesn't feel like an adventure. It doesn't feel exciting. It feels dry. This is often one of the reasons why, because we simply aren't sharing this great news with those around us. And there are a lot of reasons we can choose not to share it with people that we know need to hear it. Sometimes we're fearful and how they might react, right? Fear of man is a big hindrance to following God in your life. It's often the first reason that comes to mind why I can't do that. I don't want to do that. We can sometimes have apathy or have a lack of concern for others, lacking God's compassion. That's something he has to give us that we need to ask for and understand how he feels towards people. Sometimes we're insecure because we're relying on our own efforts instead of understanding, just like Jesus told us in Matthew 28, 20, he's with us. We're not expected to do it alone. His spirit is inside of us. His spirit is the one that gives us boldness. His spirit is the one that leads us in the words to say. It's not based on our qualifications. It's based on God's anointing. Sometimes our priorities are out of order. We just think I'm too busy. I don't have time to take time to talk to this person about Jesus. Maybe we've tried and somebody's responses seem like a closed door. But here's the thing. If they're not saved yet, can't we, we, we can pray for them. We can still pray for them and look for opportunities, and that's the greatest thing we can do, asking God to open up their heart, open their eyes. And if you think of it, though, are any of those reasons good reasons not to talk, tell people about Jesus? They're not. Not a single one. And every single one of them is really, if you think about it, it's for selfish reasons. It's self-focus. It's, I, I don't, they're not gonna like me. Or they might not react the way I want them to react. Or they might, they might, they might just think of me badly if I, if I do this. You know, it's all self-focused. And here's the thing. When we're focused on ourselves, guess what that usually leads to? Depression, discouragement. And I can personally testify, and I'm pretty sure that you guys would agree with me, that there is nothing more invigorating and exciting as a Christian to get to share Jesus Christ with somebody. There's not. For you guys that have done it, even if it's only been like a handful of times, didn't that make you feel alive? And here's the thing. Verse 15 can also be rendered how lively are the feet of them that preach the gospel. It, it, it's, it's one of the things that God still has us on this earth to do. One of the main things. And it's what makes us feel alive. How many of you guys are distance runners in here? No, you guys are. So there's a couple. Hopefully you guys do other ways to get fit, all right? <laughs> I don't do distance running anymore either. I do short stuff. But um, all that to say is, if you're a distance runner, these two, <laughs> you probably know that when you're running a long distance, you, you have highs or lows. And, and those are often referred to as runner's highs or runner's lows. And it makes no rhyme or reason, really, because, like, I, I remember back in the day when I was younger, I was training for a marathon, and I'd go on these, like, three- or four-hour runs. And there would be times in that run where I just felt like I'm dead, you know? Like, I can't go any longer. I, I don't want to go any longer. I'm an hour into it. I've got, like, several more miles, and I just wanted to quit. And you learn to push through those because often there's runner highs, too. And you might be on mile, like, 10 of... 15, like towards the end or whatnot, and there's no rhyme or reason for it, and all of a sudden, you just feel like you could run for days. 
It's like your feet are light. You just feel alive. Like, I, man, I got this. And that's kind of like what telling the gospel is in your relationship with Jesus. It's where you will feel a spiritual high. It's because it's what you were made to do. It's what the Holy Spirit is enabling you to do. You're obeying God. You're experiencing the blessedness of it. And here's the other thing I found. It's definitely a spiritual, there's a spiritual war going on with telling people the gospel because obviously Satan doesn't want anyone to get saved. But we have a way either in our flesh or the enemy wants us to believe that somehow it's going to be way worse than it is in sharing the good news with people. Like either that you're going to fumble really bad or that they're going to receive it really bad. And what I found is even when people just didn't want to believe what I had to say or even like were a little resistance to wanting to hear it, it's never as bad as I, as I built it up in my head. Like it's like, oh, well, that's okay. I mean, again, I, I shared with you something I meant to bless you with and whether you want to believe it or not, that's between you and the Lord. But it's not as bad as the enemy tries to make it, make me believe to inhibit me from doing it, or my flesh tries to make me to believe to inhibit me from doing it. And the more you do it, the more you learn that. It's like, oh, well, that's not that bad. I should just keep doing it. There's really no reason not to do it. Amen? All right. So, for any Jewish person that hears the good news about Jesus and chooses to believe in him as their Lord and Savior, they'll be saved. And some surely already have, and some surely will in the future. So let's look at what Paul has to say thirdly in verses 16 through 21 where Christ has, or Christ has been rejected as Savior by most of Israel. It says in verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing in hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So, if salvation is as simple as Paul has explained and is available to all, then why does it seem, this is a question he's addressing again, why does it seem like the majority of Israel has not received it? And Paul acknowledges in verse 16 that not everyone welcomes and believes the good news about Jesus, including many of the Jewish nation, just as Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53.1, which Paul quotes here. When we hear the word of God, it demands a response, Okay? We have the responsibility to either believe and obey it. Our belief is always shown by our actions, all right? Basically, it isn't real saving faith unless there's action that follows that faith. So that's one option. We believe and obey it. The second is we're going to either reject and deny what we're being told, all right? There's no middle ground, and this is important to understand when it comes to the gospel and the rest of God's word, we either believe it or we don't. And our salvation and our eternal destiny is, it, it rides on that choice being correct. God chose the nation of Israel sovereignly to be his people in the past, but presently Israel has heard God's word about his Messiah, as Paul says in verse 18, quoting Psalm 19:4, and the majority of them have rejected Jesus as their Lord, by not choosing to have faith in him. And so one might ask, did Israel really understand what was being told to them by God? And Paul goes on to answer that in verse 19. He says, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So Paul's addressing this by quoting Deuteronomy 32, 21 here, where God warned Israel prophetically, like way in advance, that he was going to bring other people than the Jewish nation into a close relationship with him. This is what he did with us Gentiles in order to make them jealous so that they'd see their need to believe in Jesus. All right. And so he's saying this has happened. Judging by the nation of Israel's response when 
people started preaching the gospel, the early church, and they were their jealousy drove them to reject it because they were these people were preaching that faith comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. And all these people were getting saved, including Gentiles, who they thought there's no way God will save Gentiles. Like we're God's chosen people. And say they started seeing this and they rejected it in jealousy. So Paul's saying, you should have known. This is what God said would have happened. You have no excuse. And then it says in verse 20, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So he quotes Isaiah 65, 1, where the prophet Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God, saying that God was going to reveal himself to people who weren't even looking for him. This again being a reference to us, because whereas the Israelites were seeking after God and living according to the covenant he had made with them, when Jesus came to this earth on God's behalf as the Messiah, God's word spoke of, whom they should have recognized, we weren't. When Jesus came, the Gentiles weren't looking. They didn't have the word of God. The Jewish nation did. And so again, God said, I told you beforehand that I would be saving a people that weren't even looking for me. You again should have recognized that Jesus was that Messiah because of that. And then verse 21, it says, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And I love that because the idea is that God's saying, he's quote, uh, Paul's quoting Isaiah 65 too, but what it's saying here is God's like, my hands are open, welcoming you. I haven't rejected you. My hands are open. Literally, I showed you my son on the cross and his hands were spread for you. To show you how much I love you. To show you that your sin could be forgiven. Through placing your faith in that sacrifice. My son fulfilled all the prophecies in the Old Testament. Of what my Messiah would do. Of what, my savior, of what the Savior I sent would do for you while he was on this earth. Yet you rejected him. And that sounds kind of like a bummer. But then comes chapter 12 which tells us there's still hope for the nation of Israel because God in his sovereignty knows and has chosen a bunch of the Jewish nation that still are gonna come to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, I'm gonna have the worship team come back up here. And here, there's two things I wanna, I wanna just exhort you guys in. For now, this one's directed at you guys that have placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the believers in this church, all right? During the week of prayer and fasting, the Lord this year opened up the door for us to go out into the community and pray, right? For you guys that took part in that, we prayed in the mornings in downtown Astoria at the Coast Pregnancy Clinic. We prayed in the afternoons at a, a, another church uh, Bethany Lutheran in town. And then in the evenings, we went into the middle school and prayed in the, the cafeteria library. And there was this sense, if you guys took part in those prayer meetings, that as we were praying, the Lord really showed us his compassion for the lost in this community. There were real heartfelt prayers expressing care for those that still need to know Jesus in this community and being able to reach them. And I, that wasn't by accident. I think that was something the Lord was reminding us of is that, hey, it's great that I've saved you, but there's a whole lot of people around you that aren't saved yet. And one of the reasons you're here is to be that salt and light in this community, to be my witnesses. And since that week, I've heard so many testimonies of doors that have already been opened or doors that it appears to be opening that are going to allow God's people in this church to witness to the people out there that still need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a, a family in this church where their daughter felt led. She had a heart for her friends in, in school and she felt led just to start like a Bible study with them during lunchtime at school. And that Bible study is blowing up to the point where they need like more help because it was meant just to be with her girlfriends and, and she, 
teach them the word of God, like talk about Jesus. And all of a sudden, all these guys are showing up now too. Guys do follow girls in middle school. But hey, <laughs> if, if it leads to sharing the good news, amen, right? It's like Paul, I'll be whatever I need to for everyone, right? Just to share the good news. But all that to say is that just really like, I'm like, wow, a young person that gets it and it has this compassion and does something about it like that. That's amazing. And this word keeps coming up, like just through conversations with people or sermons I'm listening to, and it's this word momentum. And I really sense this momentum coming out of the week in prayer and fasting that God wanted us to keep going, like keep on remembering what it is he was teaching us, what he was sharing with us, keep that momentum up. One of which is being a preacher of the gospel in the circles of influence that, again, he sovereignly placed each of us in, in this community. So I just wanna exhort you guys to make sure you're being intentional about doing that. That might be as simple is continuing to share with your family around the dinner table. It might be continuing to share with the employees that work around you or your classmates in school. But here's the thing. That little voice in your head that says, no, you can't do that, or you don't know enough of the Bible to share Jesus with people, it's a lie. It's a lie. I think of the, we were just praying in the prayer room, somebody prayed it, the, the woman at the well that met Jesus and she was, she met him for 10 minutes and she went away and she just simply told people, come and meet the guy that told me everything about myself. <laughs> and God used that, all right? It just say what you know and God will use it. And here's the thing, if you've been studying through the book of Romans, the first nine chapters were all about the gospel. They were all, everything you need to know, and you can go back and listen to the recordings if you haven't been here, but now Paul gets to chapter 10, and he's like, now that you know it, do something with it. I've told you everything you need to know, go out and share it with others now. That's what he's telling us to do, and I really think that's an exhortation, something that God's been reiterating to us as a church, just reminding us that we have a purpose in this community more so than anything else, and that is to be witnesses for Jesus. So when you're coaching those kids, that's your purpose there first. Don't forget it. When you're working in that job, that's your purpose there first. Don't forget it. Because when we understand that, it'll guide all our conversations. It'll guide our actions. Amen? Amen. And then the second thing I wanna just say is that if you're here today and you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you've not made that decision, here's the thing, you've heard the good news today clearly. And now you have a choice to make. As I said before, indecision is a decision. There's no, I'll just wait and see. That's rejecting Jesus. You have the choice to do what Paul said today. Either reject the truth or Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, at which point you'll be saved. That is an invitation God has given you personally today. And here's the thing, we're gonna have people around the room, nobody's watching you, but we'll have people available to pray. And if you wanna make that confession to somebody today, if you need help, you don't even know what to say, but you're like, that's me, I wanna be saved, I need to be forgiven of my sin, I need to receive Jesus, I need to confess, I need to believe, then you can go do that with them. And they'll help you, and they'll lead you in a prayer. But don't walk out the doors without making a decision because you're only guaranteed today. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know if you'll get to make that decision tomorrow, and it's a decision that you can only make while you're alive on this earth. So don't wait. Now what we're gonna do is we're gonna get the communion elements and we're gonna take communion together today. So don't just grab them and wolf them down. You're gonna come up during this last song and you're gonna grab the communion elements and you're gonna hold them. And after that first song, I'll come up here and I'll lead us. We're gonna take communion together, just rejoicing in, at this chapter that's heavy 
in the gospel, we're gonna rejoice together in, in taking that bread that represents Jesus's body that was broken on the cross, taking that juice that represents his blood at the salvation that God has gifted each of us, amen? We never want to become insensitive to that. Even as I was reading it, you might've told, it was, it was emotional for me. Because every time I read that, I remember how thankful I am that God saved me when I was 20. I remember clearly what my life was like before he came into it and how lost I was. And I rejoice every day that he found me. And I don't wanna ever grow insensitive to it because I'm gonna spend eternity rejoicing with Jesus. Amen. So we're gonna take that communion elements together. If you're somebody here that's not placed your faith in Jesus, don't grab those elements because we're giving worth to what Jesus did. So you would be doing it in an unworthy manner is what the Bible says. But here's the thing I'd encourage you, get saved today and then come rejoice with us in your salvation. Amen. Lord God, thank you, much. Thank you so much, Father. This is one of those chapters where I honestly, I felt I, I could have just read it and said, it's enough. Who wants to get saved? Can we rejoice in our salvation, Lord? It's so good to be reminded of, of what salvation is, of how we've been made righteous with you, that you did something we can never do in ourselves. And Lord, even now as we grab these elements and we just we take some time to pray and, and think about where we're at in our life with you, would you just remind us of our salvation in, in, in like a new way, a fresh way? If that excitement is there no longer, can you replace it? Can you help remind us of where we were without you and where we are now with you? Because that's surely something to be excited about, Lord. That joy and that awe that amazement when we were first saved, Lord, we want that even now. Because we want it to also produce in us that, that excitedness to share it with those around us, Lord. We've been given the greatest gift we could ever receive in you saving us, and we don't want to hold that gift to ourselves. We want to give it to everyone around us. And we know that you're giving us divine appointments every day to do that. We just want to see them and in faith step out in the boldness you say you'll give us and be obedient just to tell people what Jesus has done for us. Maybe there's specific ministries just like that girl started in the middle school that you're, you're wanting to work through some of the people here. You're putting it on their heart. And of course, Lord, we, we kind of, we're waiting on you. We want that confirmation, but sometimes we can talk ourselves out of things that you want us to do that are really clear. So maybe you're just affirming it right now for somebody. This is what I want you to do for me. May we listen and obey when you tell us to do those things. In Jesus' name.